This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have a very special episode during National Pharmacy Week, and we have two major thought leaders in the pharmacy profession. We have Melissa Muir Corrigan and Dr. Jacinda Abdul Mudakabir. Let me tell you a little bit about them. So Melissa is an executive leader, proven innovator, and visionary. She's someone that spent her career building alliances and teams, really focusing on collaborative ventures and partnerships. She's done a lot of amazing work in healthcare, pharmacy, education, accreditation, and measurement. And she's really out there rethinking the pharmacy workforce and the roles for innovation. And she is a national spokesperson for women leaders. And she's the host of the Melissa RX podcast. So definitely check that out. And then we also have Dr. Jacinda Abdul Mudakabir, otherwise known as Dr. Jam. Dr. Jam, she's the assistant professor of pharmacy practice at Loma Linda University School of Pharmacy and a critical care infectious disease pharmacist. She has spent her career thinking and magnifying and rectifying health inequities in minoritized communities. And she was recently published in Lancet Global Health sharing a multidisciplinary and community engagement initiative that she did on COVID vaccinations. Outside of her work as a subject matter expert in infectious disease, pharmacokinetics, and pharmacodynamics, she's been out there advocating for health equity. She's provided some really impactful research in the world of pharmacy. She was recognized by the United States Public Health Service, and she was the recipient of the USPHS Outstanding Service Award in 2017, and she was recognized by by the European Congress of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Disease as one of their 30 under 30 outstanding young scientists. So Daniel, we had just such an amazing conversation with two really impactful thought leaders in our industry in the world of pharmacy. So happy to share this with our listeners today. And uh, what did you think about the interview that we just had? Fantastic interview, Eric. You've said it well. You've you've set the tone for who these women are and how impactful and important their messages are. And we share this episode at an important time. You know, it's National Pharmacy Week. It's a time to acknowledge the invaluable contributions that pharmacists and pharmacy technicians make to patient care in hospitals, outpatient clinics, and many other healthcare settings. The messages that they shared today about women in leadership, about reaching the community where they're at, the efficacy of vaccines, the importance of the pharmacist being integrated in healthcare. This is the right time to be thinking about this and it's such an important part of health value. Indeed, Daniel. Pharmacists have such an important role to play in value-based care. So let's go ahead and hand it over to Melissa and Dr. Jam as they join us this week in the Race to Value. Melissa and Dr. Jam, welcome to Race to Value. I could not be more excited to have you joining us this week. Of all weeks, it's National Pharmacy Week, and I'm ready to have a great conversation. 
Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Thanks. I really look forward to being here. Well, I was thinking as we started our conversation today, I wanted to discuss the importance of women in leadership. And personally speaking, I've been thinking a lot about this issue and my own exploration of what it means to be a man in today's world and how I can do better to provide advocacy and reverence for women to lead in healthcare and business. And it really seems that society sets you on a path early with conditioning about what it is to be a man or a woman and that there's a societal norm, for example, for a woman to be a gatherer and a nurturer and a bond and care for others. And as, as a man, you have to be very stoic. You're conditioned to think about this dominant idea of patriarchy. And I think it's time that men really start thinking about how to honor strong women and allow them to lead. And I'm thinking about this in the context of the pharmacy profession. Women make up over half the U.S. population. They comprise the majority of pharmacists at 55%. The C-suite leaders of health systems insurers, pharmacy chains, and pharmaceutical companies almost are populated mostly by men. And there are no women, as far as I could tell in my research, running a top 10 pharmacy chain or pharmacy wholesaler in the country. And of the top 10 specialty pharmacies, only one is run by a woman. And according to a report by Assured Pharmacy, of the top 10 pharma companies in the world by revenue, only 22% of their executive teams are made up of women. And while in the board of directors across these top 10, 29% are women. So all that said, you know, it just seems like there, the times are changing. We're starting to see STEM professions slowly become less male dominated. And I wanted to ask you both, if you could just speak to the importance of having women in pharmacy leadership and per perhaps even provide guidance to men on how to hold space for women during this important time of transition. And lastly, what would you tell those women listeners out there who may be suffering from this sense of imposter syndrome where they might lack confidence to lead and may be inclined to distrust their success when they're thrusted into leadership roles? Well, thank you, Eric. I really appreciate that overview. And it's American Pharmacist Month where we celebrate the work of pharmacists. And on October 12th, we celebrate Women Pharmacists Day. And so I think that's an important milestone that's been in place the last couple of years related to celebrating pharmacists that are women and hopefully encouraging more leaders that are women, whether it be deans, whether it be leaders of chief pharmacy officers in health systems, in chain pharmacy, et cetera. But it's an important thing that we're talking about. And you know, to your question about how men could help hold space for women, I think a big thing is serving as an ally or an advocate. And Jam and I have talked about this quite a bit, that it's important for women to have individuals who will serve as mentors and sponsors. But sponsors are very different in that they help bring forward candidates for positions, candidates for awards, candidates for committees. And so I know that your podcast, the Race to Value podcast can be real tactical at times. So that would be kind of a next step that I would encourage people to think about is, is there someone out there that you know has done things that are worthy of, of recognition or that you can bring someone's name forward? And that's a really important piece. You did mention in your research related to how there needs to be more pharmacist women leaders. And I do want to say that I'm pleased that, you know, in the past year, Walgreens does have a new CEO and it's Rosalind Brewer, who is not only a woman, but also a woman of color. And so that's very exciting. And she's doing some very innovative things with Walgreens. And we know that their role is so important during the pandemic, but that's one example. And we need many, many more. And so I think talking about it is important. I serve on the APHA Foundation has a Women in Pharmacy Committee, and we have a series of activities where we're going to work on, um, we have an event that's scheduled later in October, and it's going to be talk about the history, past, present, and future, and so roles for women and women in pharmacy. And then finally, you know, you talked about imposter syndrome, and that's a question I think that if you mentor learners or mentor student pharmacists or trainees, pharmacy residents, or people earlier in their career, it's something that happens and that, that people experience. And we also know that there's research out there that for men, they'll apply for a position if they're not really qualified or if they feel that they're not totally qualified. But for women, they need to feel that they are qualified like 90% or higher sometimes before they're going to put their name in for a position or an opportunity or promotion. And so, you know, my sense is at least some of the things that I've learned related to imposter syndrome is A, a lot of people feel it and you just need to work through it. And then also realize that 
you know, with every opportunity, with every learning, it can be, what can I learn from this and how can it be a growth experience and a growth mindset? But I think talking about some of these issues is really important and highlighting examples, this whole idea of see her, be her, and that broadening so that people realize that leaders and people in different positions come from all walks of life when we wrote the gender equity and sexual harassment paper in regard to the pharmacy profession, it was important for us to have also male leaders on that manuscript to show that not only are we calling out sexual harassment and calling out the need for gender equity in pharmacy, but we also have, as Melissa stated, sponsorship and support from other men that have noticed this and they are willing to be our allies and to support us and to also echo and amplify this need for equity, this need for a lack in sexual harassment or consequences for those that have engaged or enacted sexual harassment throughout the profession. And I say all of this to just echo what Melissa stated is so important to have just the sponsorship to have the understanding of those that do have seats at the table, because that's the only way that you can create more seats is when those that are there understand there's a deficiency and they are willing to ban with those that are a part of that group that's disparaged and to really amplify and to um, ring the alarm on, on certain concerns. What an important topic and great responses from both of you. Thank you so much. I just really appreciate setting the tone this way for the rest of our conversation. I want to jump into talking about the role of pharmacists now in value-based care and improving health equity. Before we get into that, though, I'd like to engage you both in the topic of prescription drugs in our country and just set some context around the topic. Healthcare spending in the United States is high and continues to increase, as does the spending for prescription drugs in particular. Although the $329 billion spend on prescription drugs is relatively a small part of the $3,800 billion we spend in total on healthcare, prescription drugs are the fastest growing healthcare expenditure and consistently outpace other health spending. I know neither of you are health policy experts, but I did want to bring up the unsustainable pharmaceutical cost trajectory in terms of its impact on patients. We know Americans spend on average of over $1,500 per person on prescription drugs and paying much more than comparable nations. Because the cost of those medications is rising so fast, many people don't take them as prescribed. And a few weeks ago, the Biden administration expressed support for legislation that would empower the government to negotiate Medicare drug prices with Big Pharma, which is huge news in the world of value since the federal government is the biggest purchaser of pharmaceuticals and will force downward pricing effects for other purchasers. HHS Secretary Javier Becerra commented on this saying, life-saving prescription medications should not cost anyone their life savings. Yet too often, many low-income families cannot take their prescription medications because of cost concerns. By promoting negotiation, competition, and innovation in the healthcare industry, we will ensure cost fairness and protect access to care. With that statement in mind from Secretary Becerra, I'd like to ask you, as leaders in the pharmacy profession, can you please provide perspective on prescription drug pricing and its adverse effect on the patient population? Dan, you outlined a really complex issue and that healthcare itself is complex and prescriptions can be complex. But I think the bottom line is we want to have the patient at the center and the patient to have access to care. So my take on it would be how we can look at providing opportunity for patients to have access to the medications that they need so that they're not making choices between whether they're going to pick up their prescription or buy groceries. And it can be as simple as that or as disturbing as that. So there are, you know, a number of programs in place that help patients obtain medications that they need, and there probably needs to be more of those. But the, addressing this whole issue so that patients are able to get the medications they need is really, really important related to resolving health challenges. I think I would even add to what Melissa stated, when we would do the vaccine clinics, we would always have individuals come and it was individuals in minoritized communities. And they would say, do we have to pay for these? I don't want to get vaccinated if I have to pay. 
So the price associated with these medications, and as you stated, Eric, these are life-saving medications, that's a really huge barrier for individuals. And I can speak from the minoritized perspective. I myself am a Black woman. I grew up in a Black family, so I understand what it is that we went through in terms of the cost of prescription medications. But I could also identify and I could empathize with what those individuals that were worried about the cost of the vaccines stated. So it's important that we are equitable and that we are mindful of this when we when we work to create access to health care. And we want to make sure everyone can afford them. Everyone can afford to be managed well by the, by the novel things that we do have. I think about the cost of medications all the time. I'm working to put everything together to make sure that I use the platform. Also, I think that the approach to the COVID-19 vaccines is a great model because they are free. We do know that. I think that we have shown that we can make life-saving medications accessible. So I think it's a matter of applying these lessons that we have learned during COVID-19 to how it is that we utilize medications and how it is that we create access moving forward. Well, you both made some outstanding points. And Jam, I wanted to get your perspective on the role of the pharmacist in improving health equity. Just thinking about how there's never been any period in American history where the health of Blacks was equal to that of whites. It seems that disparity is, in fact, built into the system. Routine medical practice continues to treat Black and white patients differently. And this absolutely must be changed if we're to truly transform our healthcare system and improve outcomes for all. And due to these effects of social determinants of health, racial and ethnic minorities in our country experience a disproportionate burden of preventable disease, death, and disability as compared to non-minorities. And we've really seen that come to light, especially in the pandemic in terms of societal awareness. But this idea of health equity, ensuring that every person should have a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. It seems like that's been a focus and a goal of public health for decades. And there's a role that pharmacies can play in this. I mean, there's a tremendous opportunity to positively impact and address the systemic health disparities in communities of color and low-income neighborhoods. And pharmacists play a major role, I think, in improving health outcomes for disadvantaged populations. And you know, there was one example I was reading, 60% of Americans have a chronic disease like diabetes and hypertension. We all know that. But the minorities and underserved communities are disproportionately affected. And But there's a study that came out about 10 years ago in the American Journal of Managed Care, and researchers found that 56% of Black individuals who received medication therapy management services from a pharmacist significantly improved their diabetes compared with 23% of participants in the control group. So I, I just think that illustrates the role of pharmacists and areas like chronic disease management, prevention, medication management, health and wellness, advocacy. So I just wanted to ask, you know, maybe Jam, you can kick this off. And Melissa, I'd love to hear your opinion on this as well. But, you know, how should the pharmacy profession mobilize around this important issue of health equity to ensure that all patients have a fair and just opportunity to be healthy and well? Is there a role the profession can play in becoming better advocates for health equity, social justice, and the elimination of institutional racism in our industry? Absolutely, Eric. I myself am a pharmacist with a master's in public health, and I got it because I knew that I wanted to be able to look at um, healthcare holistically, and I wanted to be able to approach it from a disparities perspective, because that's what we as a profession, I believe, do. Pharmacists are arguably some of the most access, if not the most accessible healthcare professional. And for reasons that you bring up, we're very closely acquainted and you form intimate relationships when you go visit the pharmacist. So I mean that for me, we know my pharmacist by name. My mom is it's funny because I think about how my mom would tell him that I was interested in pharmacy school and how now he'll continue to ask about me, ask how I'm doing and, and how everything is, is moving. And then when it came down to getting vaccinations, my mom said, oh, well, I talked to Dr. Paul, who is the pharmacist about uh, what it is that I should, what I should do in terms of being vaccinated. And that was one of the first places that she went because he's just been so invested in their, in their healthcare. He's been able to forge these relationships. So that's an example of, and Dr. Paul works at the CVS and Target. So that's an example of where pharmacists can really step in, in terms of health equity it really describes how important pharmacists are in terms of really forging those relationships with the community. 
Also, it's important to state that minoritized individuals are less likely to have a primary care physician, to have a primary care provider, whether that be a nurse practitioner, physician assistant. So with that being said, pharmacists have really been able to step in and to narrow that gap in stating or to emphasize the importance of having a primary care physician or to be able to talk them through different ideas and different fears that they may have in terms of um, going to seek regular care with the provider. So those are definitely important, but also when we think about the different specialties that are um, included in pharmacy, I myself am an infectious diseases pharmacist. So I've really used my training that I've had. I work primarily in in vitro research, meaning that I do synergy testing on antimicrobial resistance. I've begun to really work on trying to narrow racial disparities in terms of antimicrobial resistance. And then I've also been able to work at the COVID-19 vaccine clinics because pharmacists are the utmost authority when we think about drug information. We are drug information experts. I am able to really utilize the knowledge that I have as a pharmacist, the knowledge that I've gained through different aspects of my training and translate that to the COVID-19 vaccines. I've been able to provide education, not only myself, other pharmacists alike have been able to provide education to patients in terms of how the vaccines work, why they're necessary, why two doses are necessary. And we've also been able to go ahead and vaccinate communities to really make sure that we can create access, especially when traditionally vaccines are given in the primary care provider's office. We've been able to go and put those vaccines on the ground in the communities of those that need it the most. So that's another example of just how important, how integral pharmacists have been. And also pharmacy technicians in some areas are also able to vaccinate. So the pharmacy profession is really, we're, we're working hard to just emphasize the importance that we have in narrowing disparity gaps, but also just who we are as a drug information experts and how that knowledge needs to be utilized. Jam, you've just provided some excellent examples of the importance of the pharmacist's role in this. And I would just add to share a story about why this matters and why pharmacy as a profession and the national organizations that represent pharmacists see this as so important and to share how one person can make a difference to change the world or change perspective on things. You know, Jam has talked about pharmacy's role in COVID-19 and in immunizations and vaccines. And pharmacy as a profession, as COVID was happening, got together all the national organizations and they were having routine calls together to talk about policy and to talk about barriers and to talk about how to address this in general. And then last June, you know, our nation had a period of not just a period, but it really came to a boiling point, a reckoning related to racial injustice and social unrest. And so I really have to hand it to Dr. Lakeisha Butler, who at the time was president of the National Pharmaceutical Association. And I had Lakeisha on my podcast, Melissa Rx Scripts, and she shared this story, but it was so powerful. She was on a call talking about COVID-19, and she decided it was right after everything had happened in Minnesota that she really needed to bring up what had just happened and that were the pharmacy organizations willing to come together and issue a statement. And what I'm so pleased to share with you is that immediately the answer was yes, we need to come together, we need to do this. And within a very short period of time, they put together a statement about racial injustice and just healthcare and pharmacy and got it approved by all of their boards. I, I believe there were like 11 or 12 when it started. There were a few more that were added. I serve on the board of directors for the American Institute for the History of Pharmacy, and we as a group later that month also reinforced it. So I guess a couple of things that I want to share is this is such an important topic that all the national pharmacy organizations that had been involved in this group effort with COVID-19 said, yes, we have to do something. We have to get a statement out. And so they quickly did that. And for those of you who have been involved in policy for a while or in advocacy, you know that sometimes just getting something approved can take a very long time because of who has to review it and legalese and all that stuff. So that was in itself a milestone. But I think what else is so important and really exciting to share with our listeners is that the pharmacy organizations didn't stop there. And as we're talking today, JAM has provided so many examples about why this matters. And so just a short amount of time later, like probably like a month later, there were a group of researchers, of pharmacist practitioners who got together and wrote this really important article about systemic racism in pharmacies, and then talked about some action items, how groups can work to address this. And again, many of the people that 
both Jam and I consider as mentors and friends, Dr. Lakeisha Butler, Nancy Alvarez, and Vibhuti Arya, were on this part of this paper and really talking about how we can look at this issue, that it's so important and it's it's woven throughout our society. It's a huge part of healthcare. And so those are just a couple of things that I want to highlight. And I also believe that pharmacy as a profession realizes that there's still so much to do and that this is a very challenging issue. It's a complex issue. There's conversations that need to be had. Some of these conversations are not easy. So there's more policy that's coming out and then hopefully implementation and tactics related to what are the steps that we can take to become better advocates, to look at health equity, social justice, and look at this whole issue holistically. Thank you so much for those thoughtful responses. I want to continue this conversation about the issues of health equity and social justice and think about how important it is that we have pharmacists that reflect the racial and ethnic diversity of the communities that they serve. Several healthcare professions, including pharmacy, have recognized, as you just so aptly stated, Melissa, that diversity is fundamental in providing safe, equitable, and effective healthcare. And despite efforts led by multiple pharmacy organizations to address the lack of diversity and inclusion of historically marginalized racial groups, including Blacks, the pharmacy profession's demographic profile continues to fall short of mirroring the U.S. population. For example, while Blacks constitute approximately 13% of the U.S. population, in 2019, they represented only 9% of all enrolled pharmacy students. Further, while extensive data on racial and ethnic demographics for pharmacy residencies are not publicly reported, in the only racial and ethnicity data available, Blacks accounted for 6% of all residency positions affiliated with U.S. colleges and schools of pharmacy. This underrepresentation in pharmacy schools and pharmacy residencies ultimately translates into a shortage of Black pharmacists and subsequent lack of representation in national pharmacy organizational leadership. What can pharmacy schools and pharmacists in practice do to advance more diversity in the profession? And in doing so, how will a more diverse pharmacy profession improve health equity through the provision of culturally competent care? I think that it that is so much as acknowledging the disparities that you mentioned. I think it's important that we have these conversations of at the end of the day, the profession is not representative of what it is that the United States demographics reflect. I think holding a grounds for that conversation really gets certain actions moving. So I appreciate the new publications that have uh, come out that, that have highlighted these facts. So first and foremost, that. I think also it's important that schools and organizations tap into the organizational bases that are comprised of minoritized individuals. That meaning the National Pharmaceutical Association that uh, Melissa discussed that was previously led by Dr. Lakeisha Butler or the SNAPA, which is the student organization for um, NPHA or the National Pharmaceutical Association. So it's important that we invest our efforts and that we amplify those organizations so that we can recruit students so that we can show them that we care about their, their place in the profession and that their place in the profession is important, but also it's important that we really tap into the surrounding universities that individuals go to for four-year degrees and et cetera. So it's important that we tap into that. We tap into high schools. We create pipeline programming so that we can ensure that we have a ground for for making the the profession more equitable. I know at, at Loma Linda, we have an organization or a community partnership organization And then they hold a summer program for students of color every single year. And I actually went there this year and I talked about what it means to be a pharmacist, what I do as a pharmacist, and created a difference in conversation because I know that oftentimes people equate pharmacy with being um, community pharmacists. And while community pharmacists are so important to the profession, they're just one aspect of the profession. And pharmacy has so much to offer. So being able to show that difference and just how um, diverse the profession is, but going ahead and um, emphasizing that amongst individuals of minoritized groups, but starting early. I believe that's going to be very important to making sure that we create equity, that we decrease that diversity gap that we have in the profession. And then you do talked about why is it important for racial concordance? Well, several studies have showed that racial concordance equates to better patient outcomes. So we can at the very least have 13% of pharmacists 
look like the 13.4% of Black individuals that we have within the United States demographics. We can at the very least have 28% of pharmacists be Latino or Latinx so that individuals can know that they can receive care from someone that looks like them, someone that emphasizes, someone that has gone through the challenges that they go through. So when they talk about what it is that that they battle or when they talk about having problems with paying for medications or when they discuss being fearful of receiving vaccines, they can go to someone that understands this, but is able to work hard to zone in on what it is that they need to emphasize these needs and to ensure that they receive the best care possible. I think everything that you just described, Jam, is so important and so helpful. And you know, one thing that I would add is that many of the national pharmacy organizations have taken notice on this issue and they see it as very, very important and fundamental, you know, a value that they need to diversity and inclusion and equity moving forward. And so there's been task forces that have been created, but you, all of us know that sometimes, you know, a group can come together and statements can come out, but nothing happens. And I'm pleased to say that I have seen, even in just the past year, that there has been movement on this issue related to leadership in organizations. And a big part has to go back to looking at the nominating process and the nominating committee and that were there barriers in place that would prevent underrepresented populations or individuals from putting their name forward? Or if they put their name forward, were they considered fairly and appropriately based on the systems that were in place? So I think in the past year, year and a half or so, there's been a lot of look at how do we open that up? How do we invite others to the table? How do we widen the path? And what does that look like? So we go to places like Jam described, the National Pharmaceutical Association, SNAFA, we go to HBCUs, you know, we look at what's out there and say, you're welcome here, join us, get involved, you know, serve on a committee. The other thing too is allow for people as emerging leaders to get involved earlier in their career. So it's not the same old, same old people that are picking each other, or I know that person, so that person should get that award, or that person should be up to run for office, et cetera. And so it really gets back to some of the things that both Jam and I have talked about, why sponsorship is so important, and really opening your world related to interacting with different groups, opening up what you're reading and what's part of your social media, all those kinds of things. And then also, you know, I do a lot with the University of Iowa related to speakers for events. So how do you broaden your cadre of experts and where do you find those? And, you know, Jam and I can share a fun story that we met on Twitter. You know, I saw some of the work that she was doing and I was so excited. So, you know, how do you broaden who you connect with? How do you think about speakers for events, whether they're in-person or virtual, that are different than ones that you've used before so that there can be greater exposure? And even images are important in your presentations. Images are important in our publications. Again, so individuals can see themselves as pharmacists and healthcare providers, but then they can also be reflected in the patients that we serve. So, it is a complex issue. It's very, very serious. I think we're starting to make progress, but more needs to be done. And you know, we need to continue to look at innovative solutions to handle this challenging problem. Absolutely. I definitely think it'll be become more common. One thing I will say is that I'm so happy for the team that we do have. Our team is comprised of myself as a pharmacist. We have physicians. Um, sometimes we even have respiratory therapists join us. We have dentists, we have logistics personnel, so individuals with business degrees. We really just emphasize the importance of a multimodal approach, but also having um, just different stakeholders that will be necessary to ensure that adequate health care is provided to the patients. We also integrate community leaders and faith leaders into our approach because it's important that at every single step we can ensure that we are increasing access. So I definitely believe that this will become something of the future. I actually practice in one of the ICUs that we have at Loma Linda. I practice there as a clinical pharmacist. So I have 10 jobs at this point. But as a clinical pharmacist, I integrate with the nurse practitioner that is on board with us. And we also have an attending physician through the three of us. We work together to ensure that um, adequate health care is delivered and that we put our brains together when we navigate through different healthcare strategies for different medication management strategies for our patients. So this collaborative model is one that is so essential to the point that we can't avoid and we can't neglect. 
to talk about it. And I think that we're going to end up in a place where we are forced, you know, to have these more multidisciplinary and collaborative approaches because people bring such different and important aspects to the management of care anyway. So I myself, I bring the drug information perspective. The physicians, of course, are the diagnosticians. And then you have nurse practitioners, which assist in um, providing care as well. You have physician assistants. We have nurses there that are so important to ensuring that the medications and the diagnoses are adequate for the patient, that they're able to be delivered to the patients. They're able to give us that one-to-one information for how the patient is performing. We are in this place in 2021 where we have to have a multidisciplinary approach to how we deliver care and where we have to emphasize the piece that everyone plays and the puzzle pieces that we have here. Well, it is such a complex issue, but it's so vitally important. There's another topic that I wanted to bring up that's really hot right now in value-based care. And Jam, in your comments, you mentioned that there's so much more to the pharmacy profession than just the community pharmacist. And a lot of our ACLC members, groups that are leading in value-based care on the delivery side, they're thinking about how to pursue a pharmacy integration strategy in the ambulatory care setting. And although pharmacists are most often associated with dispensing medications and retail pharmacies, their role is now evolving to include providing direct care to patients as members of integrated healthcare provider teams and these collaborative care models are including clinical pharmacists, and they are showing these models that they can alleviate some of the demand for physician-provided care and facilitate access to primary care services, especially those related to medication monitoring and chronic disease management. And with the increasing number of medications prescribed per patient, the need for chronic disease management and the importance of medication adherence, there's so many areas of opportunity for integration of clinical pharmacist services within the team-based care environment. And with ACOs that have outcomes-based reimbursement, the medication adherence impacts on costs through reduced inpatient hospital stays and ED visits associated with congestive heart failure and diabetes and hypertension and dyslipidemia. And it's saving thousands of dollars per patient per year. So the integration of these pharmacists and primary care-based ACOs, I mean, it's a definitely a potential solution to the looming crisis and access to primary care as well. And the American Medical Association, a few years ago, they created this Steps Forward initiative to help physicians improve patient care. And one of their key recommendations was to embed pharmacists and practices in order to enhance patient care and raise physician satisfaction and support practice sustainability. So I wanted to just, in, on this topic of integration, as the industry moves to value-based care, do you think we'll see more of these integrative models of care that are focusing on tackling health disparities with a team-based, multidisciplinary approach? And will collaborative care be more common than what we see now where pharmacists, physicians, and other clinicians address health disparities separately. Yeah, I agree with everything that Jam just described, that I think it's essential to have this kind of transformation to move from silos into integration. And that the more that we do that, the more that it's better for the patient and put the patient at the center and then things aren't slipping through the cracks. But this idea of team-based multidisciplinary approach. And my hope is that one of the goals post-COVID, which you know, at one point we will transition out of this, would be that what were the learnings, what were the innovations, and what can we take through this? And we have seen pharmacists being able to do even more things with immunizations and then with the PrEP Act related to some of the things that they just in the last few weeks are able to do now with COVID-19 and the antibodies and all of that. So it's, it's just like, what does this look like and how do we address it moving forward? And Jam has described some really interesting partners that I think are part of the ecosystem that we've talked about today, whether it be practitioners, their churches, we know that there's healthcare that goes on in beauty shops that can make a big difference um, in barbershops, et cetera. So it's, it's also broadening our thinking, meet the patients where they are, where are we going to best be able to provide the information, provide the engagement so that, again, there is this adherence so that they are able to live their best lives and be well. I love these comments and I want to keep going on this topic of adherence. As we're thinking about these integrated models of care that you've been talking about, one of the biggest opportunities we have is medication adherence, especially in high-risk populations. 
for people with chronic diseases, management of their conditions is fundamental to minimize the impact of the disease, to improve health outcomes, to prevent further disability and reduce healthcare costs. It's been widely noted that only half of Americans with chronic conditions take their medications as prescribed, making medication adherence improvement a priority in the public health agenda. According to the World Health Organization, a series of factors rather than one single factor determine the patient's ability to follow treatment recommendations correctly. In addition to the healthcare team and healthcare system, these other factors are social, economic, condition-related, therapy-related, and patient-related factors. All that said, we're seeing medication non-adherence, most commonly among low-income, uninsured patients who are starting therapy for chronic conditions. Can you both speak to the impact of social determinants of health on medication adherence? I mean, outside of the work that pharmacists can do to address SDOH in a clinically integrated network and multidisciplinary team, what role can community pharmacists play in engaging with patients in the community to address the root causes of medication non-adherence? I think that when it comes down to assessing medication adherence, and when we think about social determinants of health, I think that we don't often think about social determinants of health when we think about medication adherence. For me in pharmacy school, I'm not going to say this is what the curriculum was set up for me to take out of it, but it's what I got. And it was more so, oh, well, you know, these patients don't take these medications because they are part of minoritized groups, or these patients don't take the medications because they're a part of a lower socioeconomic status. I didn't really think about factors that could contribute to this, or this patient has diabetes because this patient is a part of a minoritized group, and I know that minoritized groups are more likely to have certain disease states. Until I went and um, got my master's in public health, I didn't really start to link why and to um, think about different factors that contribute to these things. So in terms of diabetes, I didn't think about the fact that individuals of minoritized uh, backgrounds are more likely to live in food deserts, meaning they don't have access to the foods that they would need so that they would not have diabetes, meaning they have to rely on the fatty foods, the more sweetening foods that we see prevalent in that certain disease state or in hypertension. So I didn't, I didn't think about certain factors that could be a part of what it is that we see in terms of social determinant of health inequities. So I think that as community pharmacists, and I will even go further as to say as clinical pharmacists, so as our pharmacists that are in the hospital systems, as our pharmacists that are in ambulatory care, it's important that we think about these aspects. When we think about these patients that we are interacting with, that we go beyond what it is that they show us, that we really try to dig deep in terms of the adherence, and that we work hard in terms of advocating for a decline in, the, in these gaps or advocating for an increase in access. And that we work hard to deliver health care in a matter in which the patients can receive it. It also boils down to a matter of when individuals don't know the importance of certain medications, it's a sharp decline in in their willingness to be able to take it. So when I was in pharmacy school, there was a finishing school in Detroit that I went to, and I did um, different medication management, small, many interactive lectures. But for me, it was so amazing to be able to see kind of that light bulb go off like, oh, you know, that's why it's important that I get my children vaccinated. Oh, this may be why it is that I don't receive antibiotics when I take my child to the urgent care. So when you let individuals know about things, when you educate them just on certain things work, when you make them stakeholders in their healthcare, you create a different type of conversation, but you create that opportunity for adherence because when you know better, you do better. So I think that's also important and something that pharmacists can do because we have that knowledge. We are able and we are closely acquainted with the community to be able to work in this way. Well, Jam said, when you know better, you do better. And I think that is just such an important quote that talks about why social determinants of health are so relevant to medication adherence. And you know now we're on the radar screen of pharmacists in the pharmacy profession and that we see this as an important thing related to pharmacy practice transformation. And we do know that in community pharmacies, there are pharmacists that are looking at the patient holistically and saying, what other services do you need? What else can we help you provide? And I want to be clear that, you know, that all may not happen within a community pharmacy or within 
uh, clinical setting that Jam talked about, but they could be an, a referral out related to either a food resource or a transportation resource. If someone can't get their medications or can't get to testing that they need, then that's a problem. And so to look at what's going on. And then the other thing that I want to touch on is mental health. And that is a huge challenge that's going on right now in our country. We've seen significant increases in mental health challenges through COVID-19. And so pharmacists as accessible healthcare providers are uniquely positioned to, again, provide like a triage or refer someone on or at least know about it. And there is mental health first aid certification that a number of pharmacists across the country have gone through. I went through that training just to build my awareness related to the work that I'm doing with learners and student pharmacists. And I did it about a year and a half ago, and it was really, really helpful. But the idea, again, of adherence, if you know so what's going on in someone's life or barriers or reasons why they may not be taking a medication or doing things that would help them from a preventative standpoint from needing to take a medication. And we've talked a lot about complexity. So it's like looking at the bigger picture, but pharmacists for sure play an important role. And I think it's one that we're just getting into. And I'm super excited about during American Pharmacist Month Pharmacy Week to just be talking about that some of these things are even happening and that what opportunity lies ahead. Well, pharmacists do absolutely play such an important role. And one of those important roles right now, I think, is being brought to surface during this pandemic. And that's with regards to advocacy and public health information on these vaccines. So I thought we could change gears a little bit and kind of wrap up our conversation today and really talking about efficacy and equity associated with these vaccines. So there's this question confronting many in our society right now as to whether or not they should be vaccinated. And as it stands now, around 181 million people or 55% of the total U.S. population have now been fully vaccinated. Unfortunately, with a large portion of the U.S. population still unvaccinated, it seems that COVID-19 isn't going to disappear in the near future. I mean, we're still, I guess at this point, we're just expecting it to become an endemic and waiting for the major mortalities to subside. But the U.S. is going to continue to see outbreaks of the virus in communities with low vaccine uptake. And even if people in these under-vaccinated areas rush to get shots when outbreaks happen, it still takes about a month for vaccination to produce strong immunity. And as for the effectiveness of the vaccines, it seems that the data is unequivocal that they are working, but I know many people have concerns and despite the scientifically sound basis for the vaccine and its efficacy treatment and this large treatment group of 181 million people, I mean, it seems like we do still have these two Americas that are divided among geographic and political lines when it comes to receiving the vaccine. I was thinking if you have a way to explain the technology of the vaccine in a very science-based, but like the mRNA versus the, the Johnson & Johnson, maybe if you could provide guidance to our listeners who are ex still experiencing hesitation with regard to the vaccine and what role do pharmacists play in dispelling common concerns about vaccine-related adverse effects and what can they do to improve vaccination rates in communities? In terms of the uh, vaccinations, I'll go ahead and explain just how these vaccines work very briefly. So we have mRNA vaccines. We know that mRNA exists readily in our bodies. And mRNA just sends messages to our bodies on things that it needs to know or certain proteins that it needs to make in order for us to uh, stay alive. So utilizing this um, mechanism, we have mRNA vaccines that then send the message to our bodies to make the spike protein or a specific protein that's significant to the coronavirus. You are injected with this mRNA vaccine. It tells your body, hey, you need to make this spike protein. Once your body makes that spike protein, your body says, wait, this isn't supposed to be here. So your body makes immunity or protection against this spike protein. So should you see the coronavirus in real life, you should be protected. So then we have the Johnson & Johnson or, or the AstraZeneca vaccines. Johnson & Johnson is the one that has an emergency use approval here in the United States. And these are called um, adenovirus vector or viral vectored vaccines. So what that means is it uses a common code or a low-grade common code to go ahead and send that gen genetic information to make that spike protein to our bodies. And then once your body makes that spike protein, then you go ahead and you should be protected should you see the coronavirus in real life. 
So both of these vaccines are very important when we think about the Pfizer vaccine, as you stated, the Pfizer vaccine is currently, it has full FDA approval for those individuals that are 16 and up. It is seeking full FDA approval for um, younger individuals. However, it currently has an emergency use approval for those individuals that are 12 years older and up. They have recently concluded their study with individuals that are even up to five months and up. So Pfizer is really on the front lines. There was actually our first vaccine to receive an emergency use approval. So they're really working hard to ensure that their vaccine is one that is fully FDA approved for everyone in terms of being vaccinated. When we think about effectiveness, when the clinical trial of this of this study first came out, there were about 40,000 individuals that were enrolled. It is a randomized controlled clinical trial. That means that individuals were randomly sorted to either uh, receive the vaccine or to not receive that vaccine. And of course, we had a decent representation of minoritized individuals, so that being Black, Latino, and then uh, Native Americans, so quite representative to what we see in the United States demographics, as well as those individuals 65 and older. We want to know do these vaccines work against those that have been disproportionately affected? So we did have that representation in all of the clinical trials, actually. So in terms of the uh, effectiveness after that second dose, so with the mRNA vaccines, they do try these vaccines in animals and in in cells before they go ahead and inject humans. So they want to know what do we need for maximum protection? So they knew that after receiving two doses, individuals would have the maximum amount of protection that the vaccines could provide. So that's why these mRNA vaccines are two doses. So after that second dose of the vaccine in the um, Pfizer group, there were eight individuals that received the vaccine. There were eight individuals that developed COVID-19 versus about 165 in that group that was unvaccinated that did not receive that vaccine. So we saw about 95 effectiveness or efficacy there with that vaccine. So that means that you are 20 times more likely to be protected should you be vaccinated with that Pfizer vaccine. That's what they saw in their study. With the Moderna vaccine, we have that same distribution. So about 40,000 individuals, 20,000 to each group in terms of those that were vaccinated. In terms of minoritized individuals, we had a decent representation. And also in the Moderna study, they, they actually halted their study to ensure that they had enough Black enrollees into their vaccine trial because they wanted to ensure that this vaccine worked against those individuals that were disproportionately represented amongst those that were dying from COVID-19 or hospitalized due to COVID-19. So very important. With the Moderna study, they saw about 11 individuals that were in that vaccine group that um, developed COVID-19 versus about 180 or 182 in that group that had not received the vaccine in terms of developing COVID-19. So that put us at about 94% efficacy or effectiveness with that vaccine. So still about 19 to 20 times more likely to be protected should you be vaccinated. So these mRNA vaccines really show great efficacy when we think about these variations or the mutations, or that means that the slight differences in the COVID-19 original strain of that virus, we still have 81 to 88% efficacy or effectiveness with these vaccines. So still really good vaccines and really good in providing us protection against COVID. When we think about the viral vector vaccines, when I talk about statistics here, I always like to talk about the fact that the Johnson & Johnson study had more enrollees of individuals that had a mutated or a variant strain of COVID-19 vaccine. So they had um, a bulk of the strains that were the South African variant. So I always relate this in terms of uh, basketball. So I think about it in terms of Michael Jordan. When I think about the coronavirus strain in which the mRNA vaccines were tested, I think about Michael Jordan and 1988 or so. When I look at the Johnson & Johnson study, I think about Michael Jordan in 1998. So it's a bit different. Yeah, so you see a bit of a difference there in terms, you see, you see different variables there when we think about the Johnson & Johnson vaccines. Nevertheless, we still saw great protection in terms of hospitalizations. So um, about 85% of individuals that may have developed severe COVID-19, and then it was 100% protective against hospitalizations. And I always like to emphasize with that 95 and 94 that we saw with those mRNA vaccines, that is not 100%. 
in terms of preventing COVID-19. So you, while you can still develop COVID-19 with any one of these vaccines, you wanna know, are you less likely to have severe COVID-19 and are you less likely to be hospitalized? Because we know that's when patients have those poor outcomes. And I can tell you that you are more likely to be protected should you be vaccinated. And then even in terms of just the current landscape, in those individuals that we are seeing that are in the hospitals, and I myself am an ICU pharmacist, so I can personally attest, these individuals are those, for the most part, are those that are not vaccinated. When we think about statistics that have been released by the CDC, about 95 to 99% of those individuals that are in the hospital on the ventilators are those that are not vaccinated. I recently had a student that told me that their parent passed away because they had not been vaccinated. And she had been doing so much work in her community to ensure that uh, people got vaccinated. So it's important that we take this seriously, that you get the knowledge that you can get, get the education that you may need, that you express your hesitancy or lack of confidence in terms of getting vaccinated. We wanna make sure that we show that these vaccines work, but that we continue to protect everyone that we can. I myself have been on the ground a lot with vaccines and working hard for vaccine equity. So at Loma Linda, we had the largest vaccination site in San Bernardino County, California, which is located in Southern California. It's the fourth largest county. We were vaccinating about 1,000 to 1,900 individuals per day. However, we saw that it was a strong disparity in terms of minoritized groups. So we developed a three-tiered approach to increase vaccinations amongst minoritized groups. And this approach included engaging different stakeholders, so faith leaders, community leaders. It included providing education to the community in regard to the vaccination. So we had three individuals involved in this. Um, the Assistant Vice President for Community Engagement, Dr. Juan Carlos Belliard. We had a Black psychologist, Dr. Bridget Petit, and then myself as a Black pharmacist. And then we went ahead and we did the vaccine clinics right there in the heart of the community or in different church settings within the urban communities. In regard to the tiered approach, I believe that including the pastors, the community leaders, or individuals that are closely acquainted with the community into our model of increasing vaccine confidence was so important because they're just able to cover a lot more ground than what we can. Individuals are trusting of these figures in the community. And um, they really allow for us to have a platform in terms of emphasizing the necessity of being vaccinated. When we went ahead and we did these, we called them face summits, but now we call them town halls. When we went ahead and had these information sessions, they were so spectacular. We had Dr. Belliard there who explained the necessity for vaccinations and just the effect that being vaccinated would have on the community or being non-vaccinated, the effect that that's currently having. So the layout of the current pandemic, having Dr. Bridget Petit there as our Black psychologist, she was able to really talk about just the fear behind why individuals may not want to be vaccinated. She talked about the differences there in terms of ethics when comparing the Tuskegee experiment and all of those things that may cause hesitancy or lack in confidence. And then I myself was able to provide pharmacological knowledge in regards to the vaccines, which I think is an important place for pharmacists and where pharmacists really can shine. And the placement that we have in the community in terms of providing education is really being able to go ahead and explain how vaccines work, why it's important that we have vaccines. One thing that I make sure to harp on are just different types of vaccines, because at the end of the day, once we do have a different lay of the land in terms of COVID-19, individuals will still need to be vaccinated. Minoritized individuals will, are still more likely to die of a vaccine-preventable disease versus white individuals. So it's important that we continue to emphasize and to talk about these things and that we as pharmacists have great placement there and we as pharmacists can provide this education. And then when we went ahead and did these vaccine clinics right there in the community, we were very intentional about how it is that we positioned individuals of minoritized backgrounds and minoritized communities. So we made sure to emphasize my role in the clinics as well as we had students integrated in the clinics. And I think teaching our pharmacy students the importance of equity will also be a very big thing in terms of making equity a verb and equity something that is just commonplace in the profession. So we made sure to integrate students and then students of color into this process because we wanted individuals, especially because we wanted 
to increase the representation of minoritized vaccinees, we knew it was important for them to be vaccinated by someone that looked like them. So I believe that it's important that we place equity and that we place cultural representation into every facet of vaccine equity, that we make sure that we position pharmacists as knowledge centers in terms of explaining how vaccines work. All pharmacists can do this, whether they be those pharmacists that are right in the community or those pharmacists that are in clinical settings, those pharmacists that are in ambulatory care settings. So these things are important. Well, Melissa and Dr. Jam, we have had such an amazing conversation this week, Pharmacy Week. We're in the third week of October, and this is a time for us to recognize the powerful impact that pharmacists have on patients. And this is a great opportunity to, to raise awareness about the vital role that pharmacists play in value-based care. And I can't thank you enough for spending time with us and sharing your insights and perspective and the work, the great work that you do with our listeners today on the Race to Value. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I had a great time. I hope that this encourages everyone to, to think about pharmacists as those individuals that are very necessary to uh, public health. I hope that this makes individuals want to be advocates for health equity. And let's never forget how important health equity is. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today to talk with you and celebrate during National Pharmacy Week, and it's an annual observance, and we look at the invaluable contributions that both pharmacists and pharmacy technicians make to patient care in various practice settings to ensure safe and effective medication use. So when you're out and about and you're in the pharmacy, say hey to your pharmacist and help them celebrate National Pharmacy Week.